I know that I'm eager to get back into Mark after uh, a month and a half off from Mark. Uh, but uh, before I left on vacation, uh, I felt there was something else that, I've, that needed to be addressed. Uh, I don't know if that was me or it was the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to claim uh, either of these things. Um, but we're going to be in Galatians 3, verses uh, 27 through 29, which is in the middle of an argument, but... Um, I think it addresses a, a problem that I, I see on the horizon that I want to preempt. And um, I know that uh, oftentimes uh, people can hear things that I don't say as if I said them. Uh, so <laughs> I beg you, please, listen to what I actually say. Try not to read things into what I say. Um, um, you can ask me about it afterwards, it's fine. Um, I have no problem with that. Uh, but don't go beyond where I go, I guess is what I'm, what I'm kind of saying. So let's pick up verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to a promise. Father, uh, help us to trust you with all our heart and to lean not on our own understanding. And as we acknowledge you in all of our ways, please make our ways straight. Correct our crooked ways and remove our guilt and shame through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, back in 1992, I was uh, living a semi-monk's existence. Uh, I was in seminary, and, uh, and you know, when you're a bro- broke seminary student, you don't have cable. So I had, you know, over-the-air antenna stuff, but it was not, you know, like an antenna on the roof. It was just like the, the rabbit ears kind of thing. So, you know, I got like two and a half channels on TV. So needless to say, I didn't watch a whole lot of TV. And uh, there were periods of time when I didn't have my car radio in. So there, was a, there were many ways in which I was uh, semi-oblivious to what was going on in the larger world that was around me. Um, <clears throat> and on seminary and on campus, uh, I tended to be more engaged in um, debates over baptism uh, than politics. Okay. And so it was interesting to me that the morning after the 1992 election, uh, I showed up on campus bright and early and... Overnight, someone had placed all of these signs all over the campus, honor the king. Because apparently, some people were talking a lot about politics leading up to that election, and some had fears and anger. Tribalism is a funny kind of word, and <coughs> we've since that period of time, it seems like we've seen an increase in tribalism. Uh, these factions that are, in a sense, at war with one another, vying for power, vying for privilege, vying, it seems, for almost everything. And they're everywhere. Okay. 
I had a conversation with Matt about his new job, and he told me a few things, and it reminded me about life at Ligonier and how uh, some of you can identify with this. Uh, we in the phone room uh, were sometimes felt that we were at odds with the people in marketing, uh, that they seemed to have it as their mission to make our life incredibly miserable. Okay, and uh, it's always there. It's the engineers versus the salespeople. Uh, you know, it's the management versus the, the plebes that are in the office. Uh, there are factions or tribes everywhere that have competing interests and therefore conflict. Now, from our perspective, it seems like it's gotten worse, but... As we come to this text, I want us to ask this question, uh, did the early church struggle with tribalism like we do, even if they didn't call it that? Well, if we look in the Old Testament, okay, that's a little before the the early church, but still the Old Testament is filled with sibling rivalry, which is why we read from Genesis 37 this morning. And we find, if we pay attention, that one sentence there, but when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Sibling rivalry was rife throughout the Old Testament. We see it between Esau and Jacob, Joseph and all of his brothers. It goes on and on. But that, that sibling rivalry grew to, to tribal conflict later on in the Old Testament, as we see in Judges and then later in Kings, the tribes actually going to war against one another. And many times and in many places for many reasons. As we go to the New Testament, we see that there was conflict in Acts 6 because uh, the Hellenistic Jewish widows uh, were not getting the same treatment as the other widows. And so there were some problems that were there that had to be resolved uh, with regard to the care of the widows. We see, when we read the, the book, or the letters rather, to the Corinthians, a church that was divided over a number of issues And that brings us to Galatia. Now, most of us, if we look at a map today, don't see Galatia. Uh, But if we look at older maps, so to speak, we have Galatia. Right here, smack dab in the middle of what we call Asia Minor, or what they generally called Asia. So it was one of the provinces that's there. And uh, for future reference, uh, meaning in a few minutes. Uh, we notice that one of its neighbors is uh, Phrygia, and, uh, and, and in that province, which is next door to Galatia, just to the west, is the city of Colossae. But also I want you to pay attention as we look at this thing, that there's this little city on the coast by the name of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. That's where Paul came from. Okay? So Paul is from this region of Asia Minor, even though he's a Jew. And we're going to get back to Cilicia as well in just a little bit. So that's where we are geographically. Paul's writing to these churches, plural, uh, that are within uh, this province called Galatia. And he says to them, particularly, that, that... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Paul is addressing three 
tribal conflicts that were tearing apart the churches in Galatia. But not just in Galatia, we see beyond as well, because the same language is picked up in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3. And so it's not a problem that is isolated to the people of Galatia, as though they're so messed up, but everyone else is okay. We see that this is actually a fairly common human problem. But let's look at the three major tribes or, or tribal conflicts that Paul mentions here in this letter to the Galatians. And the first is Jew versus Greek. There, there are religious issues uh, that are at work in this, but it's not just religious issues. But we see from Ephesians, as we talked about, there were people who were in, the Jews, people who were out, Gentiles. But we see politically, there were people who were up, Gentiles, and people who were down, the Jews. And so uh, this resulted in a lot of ethnic animosity, as, as Jews looked down upon Greeks or Gentiles and how Gentiles would look down upon the Jews. Now, imagine a church filled with Jews and Gentiles. People who looked down upon each other, now in the same place, worshiping the same God. Do you think it went easily? No. Slave versus free. Property versus person. The exploited versus the exploiter. How was one a slave in the Roman Empire? Now, we tend to put the slavery in the New Testament on a completely different scale uh, as to what was happening with the African slave trade. And there's only one real difference. One. It wasn't based on race. But other than that, it was pretty much the same. They were slaves because their country lost a war to Rome, and some of the people, especially the soldiers, were taken as slaves. Uh, you could be a slave or a bondsman because you sold yourself into slavery, uh, or you were sold into slavery to pay your debts. Okay? <coughs> or, unfortunately, some people sold their children into slavery pay their debts. And there were, of course, those who were born into slavery. But we see that, that slaves were largely, while, while they could occupy, uh, doctors could be slaves, uh, lawyers, accountants. It wasn't all manual labor, uh, but nonetheless, uh, they had no rights because they were property. And they were often exploited in a variety of ways, uh, just like in the American experience of slavery. And so you have resentment, economic differences, okay? The haves and the have-nots at play in that conflict between slave and free. And now here they are in a church together worshiping. But what happens if a slave is made an elder over a free man. Okay? You can understand how the conflict begins to, to form within a community. And then, of course, there is male versus female, the classic double standards which were present in Roman days. Uh, 
education. Uh, women could get uh, an elementary education, uh, but to progress further than that in, within the schools uh, would be considered, um, well, distracting to the boys, as you might exam- imagine. And therefore, if a woman was to go farther in education, they would have to have a tutor. Women could be citizens of Rome, but they couldn't vote in Rome. Uh, A woman could bring property into a marriage that she inherited from her family, but any property that was purchased within the marriage belonged to him, not both of them. There were double standards sexually as well, as uh, it was understood that a man could have many mistresses, but a woman was supposed to remain faithful to her husband. Again, we see likely resentment emerging. A resentment that doesn't get checked at the door when you enter the church. Tribes. These tribes... Later on in Galatians 5, Paul talks about how they, they were biting and devouring one another. And it's hard not to connect that biting and devouring to the realities of Jew versus Greek, slave versus free, male versus female. The tribalism was, was not just dividing the church, but was devouring the church, destroying the church. And if you read just a little bit farther in Galatians chapter 5, you see that this is a manifestation of the flesh. Among the works of the flesh that Paul talks about there are enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Tribal warfare. What happens is, we turn our group identities because everyone belonged to some of those groups. I mean, is there anyone here that isn't male or female? Okay. Um, so everyone's on that one. Okay. Uh, there are no slaves. There are no free. Uh, but, you know, we have families who had members who used to be enslaved. There are other differences. Some of you are management. Some of you are low in the totem pole. There's all different kinds of tribes or identity groups. We were sort of joking a little bit because, you know, Paul, we thought he changed his identity group because he's wearing a Niners jacket today. He's not wearing, a, he's not wearing his Patriots gear, you know. Well, Paul's a man of two teams, and that's Okay. But but what happens is that we have have these group identities, which are okay, but our sinful nature transforms that group identity into a tribe, which then begins to compete with other tribes for power and privilege. And I confess to you uh, that I am of, of two minds, so to speak, Because on the one hand, I am so weary of the cultural conflict. And yet, because of my sinful nature, I am so easily drawn into the cultural conflict. Anybody here identify with me? 
It's like, I can't help myself. Welcome to the reality of, at the same time, just and sinner. So our sinful nature creates competing tribes out of group identities. That's the first answer. Well, the answer to our first question. Our sinful nature creates competing tribes of group identities. Well, how does the gospel address the tares of tribalism in this passage? And Paul, I believe, connects the gospel to the problem in two significant ways for the divided Galatians and therefore for us. Okay? First off, there's before that statement, immediately before he talks about all of those who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul is speaking about our union with Christ, baptism as a sign of our union or ingrafting into Christ Jesus, that there has been an identity shift that has taken place. That their their primary identity should have changed. It it shouldn't be Jew, slave, male, or the opposites, but it should be Jesus. Jesus. We see how Paul digs deeper into this in Romans 6. Uh, You can go back. There's a sermon within the last year or so where I I think I hit that. I think it was a a Resurrection Day sermon. But in Romans 6, he says, uh, um, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, okay, same language, okay, were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. And so in Romans 6, Paul connects this this union that is seen in baptism to Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and His resurrection. So now that it is our life, it is our death, it's our resurrection. In other words... The penalty for the wicked strife, for the rivalries, for the dissensions, for the divisions that we participate in has been laid upon Jesus Christ. And He has died for that. But not only that, He has been raised again so that we can have newness of life, so that we can begin to say no to the divisions, no to the factions, no to the strife, no to the rivalries, because we weren't made to live that way. We weren't made to walk that way. We don't have to engage in these conflicts that way anymore. Now, if you were in the Galatian church, you'd probably realize that you were still a Jew or a Gentile, and you had some background that was ethnic. That didn't change. You were still either a man or a woman. That didn't change. You were still either slave or free. That never changed. But what changed is that that was no longer your primary identity on the basis of which you begin to judge other human beings. Because they're not like me. Or because they have not been so good to my people group. 
And we see a similar thing in, in, in James's letter, which is why we read from it, where he's, he's admonishing them, he's encouraging them, let no favoritism be found amongst you. It's another form of that, that tribalism that thinks that I can curry the favor of the rich and all will be well and, and you know, get rid of them poor people. They just sink up the place. And they're a drain on our resources. James says, be done with that kind of thinking. You're still a Jew, you're still a Gentile, whatever you might be, but no longer evaluate people on the basis of that. You have been clothed or you have put on Christ. Our filthy tribal robes with the blood of others, even if it's just metaphorical because we've slain them with our tongue, but our filthy tribal robes have been replaced by the, the righteous robes of Jesus, just as much as the filthy robes of Joshua, the great high priest, and Zechariah 3 have been removed, and righteous, pure robes have been placed upon him. In other words, when the Father looks upon you, what he sees is Jesus. Ken? When Peyton Manning was with the Colts, were you a fan? I know. I know. But did you think yourself, I don't like that guy because he keeps beating my team? I should have known that he would find a way to trap me by my words. Okay. You hate Tom Brady now, but if he wore orange and blue, he'll be your guy. Okay. A change of uniform unless you're, you're Jill Saunders. Okay. Oftentimes things change because someone is on the other team, on our team. And what Paul is getting at here is that people change teams. They're no longer on the team you hate. They're now on your team. Because your team is Team Jesus. It's not Team Republican or Team Democrat. Okay? That's why I'm bringing this up, election year. It's getting ugly out there. It's Team Jesus. That's your team. That's the team that changes the world. Team Jesus. And so we wear that same uniform. And Tim Keller, in talking about this, says, how can I look down on someone who's clothed with Christ? Simply because they are different than me in how they view certain things. And so the first part of uh, the second question, I guess, if this gets complicated, is that the gospel unites and clothes us all in Christ. This is what the gospel does. But also connected to our union with Christ, Paul brings in another gospel reality to bear. He says, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Our 
our new identity in Christ is also a new identity as Abraham's sons. Another possible translation for offspring or sons is tribe. Not tribes, 12, but Abraham's tribe. Unity, together, oneness. Paul is telling them that they're of the same tribe, and, you know, Jesus, Abraham, doesn't quite matter so much because Abraham is on team Jesus. Okay? Whether they were Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, they were all Abraham's sons, which is important to remember. No one was his offspring by nature or by birth. They all were sons by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's it. And so the Jews couldn't say, hey, we were on this train before you. Get in the back. All by grace, through faith in the Messiah. Not just that, but they're equal heirs according to the promise. Now, generally, women only got an inheritance if there weren't any boys. And part of what Paul is saying is radical. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, you're an heir. You're a son, or treated as a son. It's not like your gender has changed, but you've got the same privilege and status as a son. Nothing will be, you're not a second-class citizen. You're not an afterthought. You're just as significant as everyone else within the church. There's no longer a need to fight as though there's some prize on the line. Jesus has established our identity. Jesus has given us His privilege. And He has established our inheritance. And so we no longer need to act as if we have no privilege or status or that we need to take it from someone else. And so the Gospel makes us one tribe with one inheritance together. So what? How should we apply this, particularly in light of an election year? And here's where I'm probably going to step on everybody's toes, okay? And I understand that, or potentially step on people's toes. Paul reminds those who have put on Christ in Romans 13 to make no provision for the flesh, And so Paul would say, therefore, make no provision for the ways in which tribalism affects your life. Make make no provision for the jealousy, the strife, the enmity, the rivalries, the dissensions, the divisions. Don't let it get a foothold in your heart. Put it to death. Paul says something similar uh, in, in Colossians 3 when he's talking about that union with Christ. It's in the same paragraph uh, that he's talking about there's neither a slave nor free, all of that. Do not lie to each other, 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Okay, Adam, with all of his, his rivalries, is gone. Jesus, who brings peace, has come. You have put on the new self, he says to the Colossians, which is being renewed in knowledge and after the image of its creator. So, what do we do? Part of what that means is that perhaps we should utilize wisdom and know where we are prone to get all worked up. <laughs> and for some people, it's they get all worked up if they watch the news. I, I, I don't like to watch the news because I get worked up. But unfortunately, as I work on my, on my elliptical trainer at the Y, trying to make sure that my blood pressure stays down, working against me, it's Fox, it's CNN, it's MSNBC. Right there, right in front of my face. I don't want to see that. I was so much happier when I was over there where it was ESPN, but they changed the machines. Okay? For some people, it's talk radio. For some people, it's the Internet being online and Facebook and the wars that emerged there. But I want you to, to recognize... <coughs> That even if you aren't engaging somebody directly online, you're engaging people you know. Ever, ever pulled up at a stoplight next to somebody? It's usually a guy who forgets that um, cars have windows and he's got a finger stuck halfway up his nose. Okay? Everybody sees what you do online. If it's Twitter, Facebook, if you're not treating people well, your brothers and sisters who don't agree with you will see not just that you don't agree with them, but that you're not treating people well. And you see the difference? It's okay to disagree, but not treating people well is a different matter. They see our posts, they see our flame wars. Here's part of the reality that, that I guess I want to hit on that connects with some of this. And, and this, is, this is, we tend to view life through our own experience, right? I mean, you're not someone else. You've lived your life. And you tend to evaluate other people's lives based on your experience. Okay? This is generally what we do. And what happens is that we can begin to discredit those whose experiences don't match up ours. Where that comes to play, really, is when we talk about this thing that, um, and I, I tremble at talking about this, is privilege. There's a lot talked about privilege today. White privilege, male privilege, all that stuff. Uh, privilege, properly understood, is not about life being easy. Okay? But it is about the absence of certain disadvantages. Okay? Let me explain that. White male, I know you couldn't tell. When I get in my car to drive somewhere, it never crosses my mind 
Am I going to get pulled over today? I never think about that. And if I do get pulled over, I never have to think about, should I record this in case it goes wonky? But many of our black brothers and sisters do. They think about that every time they get in the car. Back in the days when I used to run for exercise, I'm too old, my knees stink, I can't do that anymore. Um, I never thought, I have to make sure I'm in a public place lest I get jumped and assaulted. Never crossed my mind. But I talked to my sister-in-law. Even though she's on a road, she pays attention to the cars to make sure she doesn't see one two or three times just in case someone is waiting or, or is preparing to lie in wait for her. I mail. I don't think about that. Okay. That's the sense of privilege. Things I don't even have to think about. Things I don't even have to worry about and just go on in my day. Now, I say this. Now, here, here's where I... I'm not saying this to make anyone feel guilty. It's not what I'm about. I want you to feel empathy. That there are people who have to think about that precisely because their experience is different than your experience. It does not invalidate their experience, but it also doesn't invalidate yours. Okay? It just means that they deal with disadvantages that you don't. So just be aware of that. Empathize. You don't have to curse your whiteness or curse your maleness or any crazy thing like that. You just have to say, yeah, sometimes women got it really tough. Minorities in this country, they get it really tough sometimes. I can't understand it. I haven't walked those shoes. But they experience it. It's real. It's not a figment of their imaginations. Now, this, this tribalism, politics plays on this tribalism, if you haven't noticed. Yeah, you all know, race wars, uh, class wars, you got it, man. It's just all, politics is full of that stuff. And tribalism shames those who vote differently. Uh, whether you're an Afri African American who votes conservative, you get told that you're not really black. But watching the evangelicals in the last few months, it's scary to me. Because on the one side, you've got popular preachers on the right saying that no Christian can, not should. There's a huge difference between those two words. No Christian can vote Democrat. Uh, remember, I'm not saying that. Okay? On the other hand, you have 
people on the evangelical left, I guess I should have been swap spots, bomb your left, so it's all good, <laughs> saying that to support the president is a sin. Okay? Both of those positions are wrong. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by how we vote. You're accepted into the kingdom, not based on who you voted for, what team you sided on in a particular election. You're, it's whether or not you're on team Jesus. Okay? And we need to extend that grace to one another because there are people in this congregation that vote differently than you, who think differently than you. And hopefully it's an informed thing, and hopefully you have an informed thing. Okay? But remember, they have different experiences, and we'll look at these things differently. For instance, both Luther and Calvin loved Augustine. And one of the things they loved about Augustine, or that they applied, was the two kingdoms. There's the church, and there's the state, and they're not the same. Okay? They differed in how they applied that theological position. When it came to the care for the poor, Martin Luther said, the state should do it, and John Calvin said, no, the church should do it. I tend to lean with Calvin, but that's me. Okay? But here are two godly, wise men, smarter than I could ever be, who disagree on this point, and I'm not going to spill blood over which one of them is right. Okay? John Wesley, I typically don't quote John Wesley, but today I quote John Wesley. I met those in our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. That one kind of speaks for itself. Vote for your candidate. Two, here's where it gets rough. To speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits are not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Now, John Wesley ain't Jesus, but I see biblical wisdom in what he says. You don't have to like the opponent. But they're made in the image of God. And so don't demonize them. Disagree with them. You can say what you disagree with them. But we shouldn't be demonizing other candidates. All of them are sinners. All of them have faults. All of them have bad policies. All of them have lied. All of them. As Dr. House said, everybody lies. We can also and should also discuss politics without demonizing those who vote differently. Again, you can discuss, you can disagree, but don't paint people in the worst possible light 
because of that. I lost friends in the last election. And the reason I lost friends is because their candidate lost, which is, that's the electoral college process. It's not a problem. At least it shouldn't be a problem. But what was happening is that they, uh, they were allowing others to impute motives to those who voted for the one who won. And I said, grieve if you want, but don't bear false witness. Because you don't know why a particular person voted for a particular candidate unless you ask that particular person why they voted for that particular candidate. Don't get sucked into the tribalism that says, well, if you voted for so-and-so, you have to be a racist. It's not true. Not true at all. Or if you vote for such and such a person, you must obviously be a socialist. Not true. Not true at all. Treat those you differ with as part of the same tribe. The important tribe. Okay? So our big idea, because I've gone too long on this, is that Jesus brings people of different tribes together as one. Some of you might remember Rodney King. Rodney King was a victim of police abuse. When the riots broke out in L.A. in the 90s after the trial, they had him on TV and he said, can't we all just get along? Sadly, because of the sinful nature of every person, we don't. Every person seemingly tries to turn the group identities into tribes and tribal conflict. It happens at school. For instance, Neil Peart died this week, one of the great drummers in rock and roll. And I, I blogged on it a little bit, and I was reminded of why I initially didn't like Rush, because I thought Rush was a pothead band. You had the potheads, you had the jocks, and you had the brains. And I was one of those people that didn't really fit into the other categories. I was the outsider. The normal person. <laughs> Maybe. Happens at school, at work, within cities, regions, nations, and even churches. The gospel answer is union with Christ crucified for us, who is raised to life for us so that we can have newness of life. We're now part of one tribe as Abraham's seed. The Christian life is really learning about how to live with our new identity and rejecting the strife and dissensions that our sinful nature produces. So as we engage politically, remember whose you are so that it shapes how you engage. Confess your mess. Receive the grace of Jesus Christ and walk 
in that new identity. Don't fight, but dance the gospel waltz. Let's pray. Father, uh, it's just such a part of who we are, whether it's something silly like patriots versus whatever, or, or which bands are good and which ones are bad, which is the best guitarist and all that silliness, or whether it's serious stuff like politics. But we can find ourselves identifying more with people groups than with you. And we ask that your spirit would begin to shift that our hearts so that we identify more with you than our affinity groups or the groups we find ourselves in by birth so that we represent you in the public sphere, that we really are salt and light in the midst of a culture that is lost civility. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.